Thank you so much for coming today. This is like, it, it fills my heart to see a full room. <laughs> um, I would like to start by making a few acknowledgments, primarily to my colleagues, Alison Anunziata and Eric Newman, without whose intense and often fractious, but usually friendly collaboration, this would not have happened. Um, and also to the rest of UCHRI staff whose uh, provision of silent infrastructure lies at the back of any public event that we manage to do. Um, the format for today is as follows. We're going to begin with uh, David's talk. I'm going to oscillate between highly formal and highly informal. I hope that's fine. <laughs> um, we're going to begin with David's talk, followed by Amit's response, and then hopefully a short Q&A, after which the live stream will end, and we are going to break for 10, 15 minutes while we bring out some cheese and wine to continue um, slightly into the evening. Um, okay. So now to introduce our guests. David Lloyd is Distinguished Professor of English at UC Riverside. His wide-ranging work traverses many fields, primarily Irish studies, post-colonial studies, and cultural theory. Of his many numerous books, some include Anomalous States, 1993, Irish Culture and Colonial Modernity, The Transformation of Oral Space, which contains a chapter on the cell block that, when I read that, well, it, it gave me minor goosebumps. Um, Beckett's Thing, Theatre and Painting, 2016, and Under-Representation, under the Racial Regime of Aesthetics, 2019, that is largely the subject of our conversation today. Amit Vijay is Assistant Professor of Literature, Modern and Contemporary Global Literatures in English at UC San Diego. His research engages, engages glo global Anglophone literature, modern and contemporary British literature, post-colonial studies, and urban studies. He is working on a book examining the intersections between literature, urban planning, and architecture, a project that tracks the persistence of colonial relationships in the development of contemporary spaces, including global cities. Amit, as many of you will know, is a graduate of the, uh, did his PhD in comparative literature uh, at UCI. Um, his name has been echoing in the hallways for my entire time here. And it's perhaps enough testament to the high regard in which people hold both his intellect and collegiality that everyone that I said that he was coming back to campus for, whether it was staff, students, or faculty, were thrilled at the prospect. And he's been here for four hours and already done another event before this. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, before, getting to the, uh, before letting events take their course, I want to say a few words about civil war. Today's gathering is part of a larger initiative that we've been running at UCHRI for a couple of years. Um, some of the written examples of this and output from this, as well as a few audiovisual pieces, you'll find on our relatively nascent digital publishing platform, Foundry. Um, and this fall, we are hosting a group of scholars from across the UC system as part of a residential research group on civil war, many of whose members, including their convener, my colleague Shana Melnison, are in attendance here. So in offering the term civil war as an optic for conceptualizing the present, we have in diverse ways tended to strain away from undertaking a taxonomy of empirical civil wars to offering war and civil war as a way of conceptualizing life lived under the sign of relentless social antagonism. Today, as right-wing, racist, xenophobic varieties of fascism surface across the globe and ways of belonging that were once in precarious balance tip over into permanent violence, one often hears commentators bemoan the loss of civility in public life. Civility is invoked as a counter, as a cure to these frightening resurgences. Against this tendency, we have attempted to focalize the myriad ways in which civility is not just the other of uncivility, 
but that which frames dissident discourse as uncivil. Civility as that which manages social antagonism, that which coerces consent, that which forces us to conform to a certain majoritarian logic of publicness. Civility then, not as an alternative to war, but as its operationalization by other means. This indeed might be one point of entry into the political relevance of aesthetic theory proposed by underrepresentation. And the oppressive sweltering heat of civility in this guise is perhaps all too familiar to many of us who live in Orange County. Second, in times like this, it is possible that considerations of, of the aesthetic appear sometimes to be a retreat from politics, a withdrawal into esoteric academic discourse conducted from the bourgeois safety of university campuses. Our skepticism of jargon, the work of thinking under emergencies, goes hand in hand, sometimes, with an affirmation of political struggles and their necessity to the continuation of dispossessed life worlds. Needless to say, one only has to glance at campuses around the world, from Hong Kong and Delhi, to realize how misplaced concerns about ivory towers can sometimes be. More importantly, however, it is precisely this juncture that David Lloyd's work helps us address with care, commitment, and a critical spirit. In preparing these remarks for today, I came across an article David published in, on the erstwhile blog Savage Minds about a conference and a workshop on Walter Benjamin organized in Palestine. There, he writes, quote, Above all, we had committed not to, the mere not to a mere intellectual exercise, but to the furtherance of a principle, which is that the intellectual life of the occupied and oppressed is not a luxury, but a fundamental expression of the possibility of living in common, unquote. It is an insistence that recalls for me Paul Gilroy's comment made in an interview a few years ago that the, politi that the political commitment to the mattering of black life must be accompanied by similar attentiveness to the mattering of black minds. Which is to say, when radical discourse sometimes represents the interests of the oppressed, marginalized, and dispossessed by making a case for their occupation of the space of appearance, it sometimes run runs the risk of producing the people under question as pure bodies, making the uncounted count, giving the part of no part an entry to the part, so to speak. A defense of thought, a life of the mind as no less urgent than the survival of the body is no mean undertaking in such contexts. David's work offers an important cautionary hedge against such maneuvers to speak however complexly for the other, reminding us that representation is an immensely vexed category where the intellectual's own relation to power can, in the name of this or that political project, be subsumed within fantasies of speaking for the right kind of political subjects. It is rare, or at least rare for me, to encounter work by someone of David's stature and encounter the text simultaneously as illumination and invitation, as critique and generosity, as relentless yet full of relief. And nothing captures this sense of possibility better, perhaps, than these words which appear towards the end of that chapter on the cell block in the transformation of oral space, where addressing a certain tendency towards teleological narratives of incarceration, he writes, Quote, this teleological form of narrative, however, enacts another mode of erasure. It renders of no account the intuitions of alternative forms of life that are constitutively antagonistic to representation in and by the public spheres of state and civil society. And yet the promise of such intu intuitions lies precisely in the incoherence of the shapes and relations they limb, 
where the common, with the common sense of modernity. Preserved not in remote and alien spaces, but at the heart of the modern institutions that aim at their annihilation or subsumption, they suggest the contours of modes of living that might have issued from a different conception of life in common. So rather perversely with his own words, I will invite him <laughs> to give a talk, to present his talk to us. Uh, thank you, Anirban, for that amazingly generous introduction. Uh, I'm only worried that you've set me up um, because I feel constrained now to give everybody goosebumps, and I'm <laughs> not sure that what I'm going to talk about today is actually goosebump material. Um, let me also say thanks once again to um, you all here at Irvine, which I think I've said at this podium before has always been a kind of second intellectual home for me. I'm not going to be talking directly from underrepresentation, rather I'll be talking on from it in a certain sense. But I should note that much of underrepresentation has emerged out of dialogues that I've engaged in in various ways here, both in teaching and, and in engaging in colloquia and with UCHRI and so forth. So I should say that almost anything I've done has the stamp of Irvine somewhere uh, on its pages. So thank you, and thank you for bringing me back again. Um, I'm going to not be talking for most of this directly around the theme of civil war, though civil war, I think, haunts everything that I've been writing and thinking about lately, as I'm sure it haunts us all also in our daily consumption of the news and in a certain way in our daily lives under the current regimes. But as someone who spent what I'd call a formative part of my life in a state of civil war, known with the characteristic Irish rhetorical shrug as the Troubles, the proposition that the state is not at war, but is a state of war, is not very hard to conceive. Nor is the proposition that whatever modern war the state conducts even if not strictly a civil war, it is always the war of civility against the uncivil. Already in 1983, the Irish critic Seamus Dean, in an essay, Civilians and Barbarians, had tracked from the Elizabethan poet and colonial servant Edmund Spencer to the counterinsurgency rhetoric of the Troubles, the record of this positing of the civil English against the uncivil Irish that justified every violent military or administrative means to extirpate the forms of life in which Irish resistance to English rule continued to be embodied in di diverse forms of what Anuban reminds me that I've called life in common. That historical record indeed exemplifies what, in their introduction to civil war, the anonymous French collective Tikkun designated, I quote, the permanence of civil war, and of the function of the state in suppressing those forms of life which, when politicized, challenge both the state form and its monopoly on violence. The state comes to suppress or to pacify forms of life whose very form in itself is antagonistic to the state project. The war of civility against the non-civil precedes any civil war in the commonly understood sense of that term. In a civil war, 
the unspectacular law-preserving and routine violence of the state's non-recognition of those forms of life that represent some counter-possibility to it, bursts out in a fury of destruction, as Hegel characterized the French revolutionary terror. Walter Benjamin observed already in his critique of violence the now almost daily phenomenon by which the state meets nonviolent protest with lethal and disproportionate force. From the Northern Irish Civil Rights Movement to the Great March of Return in Gaza, from Hong Kong to Cochabamba, Bolivia. For Benjamin, the general strike was the example of a nonviolent action met as violence and with violence by the state, precisely because it challenged the very foundations of the legal regime that the state's founding violence inaugurated and its subsequent monopoly on violence preserves. Benjamin's example instantiates a fundamental type of modern exceptional violence in the name of the civil. In its light, Friedrich Engels' shocked acknowledgement in the Civil War in France, introducing Marx's texts on the Commune, his shocked acknowledgement of the mass murders committed by the French Republic in its savage reprisals against the Commune of 1871, what he calls its mute but eloquent testimony to the savagery with which the ruling class is capable as soon as the working class dares to come out for its rights. Engels' shock remains the horror of the civil in the face of the foundations of the state, its originating and ongoing, if dissembled, violence. In the colonial regime, or wherever the racial state operates as such a regime, however, the strategic, ubiquitous deployment of state violence allows no such surprise. As Fanon famously put it in The Wretched of the Earth, in the capitalist countries, this is the first sheet, uh, quote on your handout, I think, in the capitalist countries, a multitude of moral teachers, counselors, and bewilderers separate the exploited from those in power. In the colonial countries, on the contrary, the policemen and the soldier, by their immediate presence and their frequent and direct action, maintain contact with the native and advise him by means of rifle butts and the palm not to budge. It is obvious that the agents of government speak the language of pure force. In the ultimate civil war that is the struggle for decolonization, the ever-present state of emergency that is the norm for the colonial state, and indeed for all states, brings forth the countervailing violence of the anti-colonial movement. Its program is a program of complete disorder. The resulting violence in the confrontation of, as I quote Fanon, of two forces opposed to each other by their very nature, unquote, is for Fanon famously redemptive, humanizing in a distinct sense. As he says, I quote, the thing which has been colonized becomes man during the same process by which it frees itself. La chose colonisée devient homme dans le processus même par laquelle elle se libère. The violence of decolonization is for Fanon the fulfillment of the expressly Hegelian demand for recognition, whose absence he had lamented in black skin, white masks, as the consequence of an abolition of enslavement by the fiat of the white masters. 
in section B of the chapter The Negro and Recognition, entitled The Negro and Hegel, Fanon draws on the German philosopher's famous or infamous master-slave dialectic in the phenomenology of spirit. And this, I think, is the second quote from Fanon. Man is human only to the extent to which he tries to impose his existence on another man in order to be recognized by him. At the foundation of the Hegelian dialectic, there is an absolute reciprocity which must be emphasized. It is in the degree to which I go beyond my immediate being that I apprehend the existence of the other as a natural and more than natural reality. If I close the circuit, if I prevent the accomplishment of movement in two directions, I keep the other within himself. Ultimately, I deprive him even of this being for itself." Unquote. Hence, the historical problem that perpetuates the racial condition beyond abolition is that, as Fanon puts it, one day the white master, without conflict, recognized the Negro slave but the former slave wants to make himself recognized. The decolonizing civil war is the realization of that desire for a recognition not granted, but won by conflict. Without this violent struggle, the former slave does not achieve recognition or self-conscious being in itself, but remains in Fanon's expression, a mere immediacy, the merely here and now sealed into thingness. And just recall that, the merely here and now sealed into thingness, because we'll be coming back to those two terms, the here and now and the thing. It's this Hegelian commitment on Fanon's part to the transformation of the racial colonized thing into the human that I want to explore critically here with you today in the context of the larger question of what constitutes the civil order of the state and of the humans that it constitutes. I seek to follow Fanon through Hegel, indeed through the very passages of Hegel's phenomenology of spirit that Fanon invokes in Black Skin, White Masks, in order to think about what I'm calling here in dialogue with black studies and critical race theory, the racial thing. To think the racial thing is perhaps inseparable from what we may recognize as the dominant theme of our times, whether we name our time late racial capitalism, settler colonial modernity, the Anthropocene, a time of civil war, in your honor, or by any other name. Today, I hope to extend my thinking with you around this notion of the racial thing, also in conversation with black studies, and especially with the work of Denise de Silva and Fred Moten, for whom the social life of things is the ground on which to think through and against the consequences of a general reification of the human and of the world that has its origins in enslavement and settler colonialism, those founding moments of racial capitalism and its ongoing logic down to today. This is, in other words, to think the general condition of reification in relation to a black radical tradition that has always thought from the place of thingliness. Da Silva has recently reminded us that the infamous passage of Hegel's philosophy of history where that most provincial philosopher dismisses Africa as never having entered into history, also describes the African as a human thing. 
You'll recall that Hegel describes Africa proper, i.e. that sub-Saharan part of the continent that does not belong to the Mediterranean and therefore to Europe, as I quote, the land of childhood, which lying beyond the day of self-conscious history is enveloped in the dark mantle of night. Accordingly, in approaching the African character, Hegel's term, we are obliged to abandon the category of universality for, as he puts it, in Negro life, the characteristic point is that consciousness has not yet attained to the realization of any substantial objective existence, as, for example, God or law, in which the interest of man's volition is involved and in which he realizes his own being. This, in Hegel, is not man seen as his own final end, man as autonomous subject. It is a human incapable of representing themselves to themselves. For Hegel then, the subjection of the African to slavery in the Americas is already anticipated, indeed justified, by the essential condition of this people without history and without self-representation. For, he says, it is the essential principle of slavery that man has not yet attained a consciousness of his freedom and consequently sinks down to a mere thing, an object of no value. One might be tempted to dismiss Hegel's remark as one of no value, were it not for the challenge it provokes to think more rigorously the relation of the mere thing to both the consciousness of freedom and to the question of value. What is the place of the mere material thing to these realms of freedom and value, both of which depend on a regime of representation and of formalization? How do we think the racial thing as resistance, in Heidegger's terms, as resistance, in light of its dismissal from the scene of thought and of history, that is, from representation? What alternative does it mobilize over and above its residual existence as a mere externality to the system, as that which has yet to be subsumed? What would it mean for us to think from the place of the thing, not as a merely negative moment in relation to the overarching subject-object relation with all its Im racial implications, but as another history of the outside, the surround, embodying what Moton calls a certain thingly resistance to the status of mere thing. What I want to propose here is that the philosophical tradition now needs to be thought from the underside of Hegel's epochal dismissal of the thing, not only in that passage from the philosophy of history, but also in his phenomenology of spirit, where the logic that informs his assertion of a relation between representation and the mere thing is first articulated. To think from the underside of this massive Hegelian dismissal of the thing might permit what Moten calls an interruption of the thing into the discourse of the object from which it has been excluded and which it had made possible. But it's also a commitment to think through the weight of what continues to impose itself on thought as its self-evidence in our procedures that continue down to us today, as Paul the Man once said, on, uh, that all of us are still Hegelians, whether we know it or not. Let us try for now to follow the philosophical operation by which the thing is made over into an object for representation 
in order to specify the qualities that constitute the thing's resistance within the very thought by which it is so prematurely dismissed. This may allow us to derive from that dismissal the constituents of what Moton elsewhere calls the social life of black things. So let's turn to the passages to which I've just alluded and which Fanon is explicitly and implicitly citing from in Black Skin, White Masks. That is the chapter on sense certainty that opens the phenomenology of spirit. And so some of these longer passages will be on your handout. In this chapter, Hegel opens his analysis of perception and consciousness with what appear as an immediate apprehension, sorry, I beg your pardon, with what appears as an immediate apprehension of something with which all knowledge necessarily begins. I quote, and it's on your sheet, I think, because of its concrete content, sense certainty immediately appears as the richest kind of knowledge. Moreover, sense certainty appears to be the truest knowledge, for it has not yet omitted anything from the object, but has the object before it in its perfect entirety. But in the event, this very certainty proves itself to be the most abstract and poorest truth. This poverty or bad abstraction of the truth yielded by sense certainty stems from two considerations. Firstly, the thing perceived in immediate sense certainty lacks determinations, as does the eye that perceives it. Second quote. I, this particular I, am certain of this particular thing, not because I, qua consciousness, in knowing it, have developed myself or thought about it in various ways, and also not because the thing of which I am certain, in virtue of a host of distinct qualities, would be in its own self a rich complex of connections, or related in various other ways to other things. Here, neither I nor the thing has the significance of a complex process of mediation. The I does not have the significance of a manifold imagining or thinking, nor does the thing signify something that has a host of qualities. On the contrary, the thing is, and it is, merely because it is. In sensation, then, the thing is merely presented to the senses. It has yet to undergo the processing that representation entails and that generalizes the immediate thing into the object of a concept. The thing, so far, is merely what is there, before us and before reflection. Hence, then, sense certainty confronts the problem of what linguistics terms deictics, or the shifter, meaning words whose reference shifts according to their context. And this is the passage that, that Fanon is alluding to in the last phrase of his that I read to you. As Hegel explains, the this of this thing has a twofold shape, as now and as here. But the now and the here only signify by virtue of what they are not. The now of the nighttime is defined by not being noon, that is, by their mutual negation. The now, Hegel says, is pointed to this now. Now, it has already ceased to be in the very act of pointing to it. In other words, the moment we say now, now is already in the past. Similarly with here, as when Hegel says, here is the tree. If I turn around, this truth has vanished and converted into its opposite. No tree is here. 
but a house instead. Here itself does not vanish. On the contrary, it abides constant in the vanishing of the house, the tree, etc., and is indifferently house or tree. Here is wherever you happen to be standing and where you are looking. I is every I then, this, every this, here and now, every or any here and now. Accordingly, they are at once universal and yet empty, without any determinate content. In its very entry into thought or language, sense certainty of the immediate thing ceases to be such and converts into its opposite. The sensuous this that is meant cannot be reached by language, which belongs to consciousness, i.e. to that which is inherently universal, that's Hegel. Accordingly, he goes on, if nothing more is said of something than it is an actual thing, an external object, its description is only the most abstract of generalities and in fact expresses its sameness with everything rather than its distinctiveness. When I say a single thing, I'm really saying what it is from a wholly universal point of view, for everything is a single thing, and likewise, this thing is anything you like. In what had seemed the most materially grounded moment of perception itself, the apprehension of anything as our object, we seem ineluctably faced with from the start with a movement of abstraction, left to choose only between bad and good abstraction, immediacy or mediation. But rather than hastily dismiss out of hand this dialectic by which the truth of perception is only realized in what Moton nicely terms the representational transubstantiation of things into objects, and instead of condemning it simply as a machine for the subsumption of the world, which it certainly is, we may also want to acknowledge that such a critique of Hegel's method likewise presents a problem for the method and the traditions of critical thought itself, as we've inherited them from Marx and others. The dissolution of the bad abstraction of immediacy is the virtual starting point of Karl Marx's capital, and the opening of the phenomenology clearly left its mark on the famous chapter on the fetishism of commodities. Not for nothing does that chapter commence with that very trivial, self-evident thing, the commodity, only to dissolve it back into the determining moments of social labor that constitute for the critical work of materialism its condition of possibility. The immediate appearance of the commodity, its being a phenomenon literally as it appears on the surface of society, offers the methodological starting point of capital precisely as the thing, as object of sense certainty, provides the starting point of the phenomenology. And, like the shifter or the exemplary thing in perception, the this here now of the phenomenology, the commodity as the object in exchange is a matter of indifference, entirely equivalent. It is the very abstraction of the commodity from the particularizing use value that it retains as a thing that allows it to become equivalent to other commodities and therefore to substitute for them in an endless round of value-producing exchanges. <coughs> in order for the specific moments of the commodity form to be developed by critical thought then, that simple appearance must be dissolved into its moments, the alternation between its value and its use and its value in exchange, 
as different aspects of the same entity reveal in turn the twofold character of social labor as on the one hand a definite useful kind of labor satisfying a definite social want, on the other a labor equalized and reduced to the common denominator of human labor power or human labor in the abstract. So far Marx. Like Hegel's thing with its host of qualities that is not except through its relation to other things, the commodity is the product at once of a great variety of distinct materials with various properties and of a variety of kinds of labor and skills. It is the convergence of, a diverse, of diverse human capacities and diverse material properties and every element within it furthermore has its own history that is belied by the apparent immediacy of the commodity that functions to mask rather than mediate social relations among humans and things. This dialectical movement through the different moments of abstraction that constitute capital in its workings is as essential to the development of its critical analysis as it was to the historical unfolding of the categories of political economy in their manifold phenomenal determinations. One might even say that the methodological primacy of a Hegelian dialectic in Marx's capital betrays the secret logic of exchange that already underlies the twofold appearance of the thing in, phenomenolo in the phenomenology. Its perpetual alternation or flux, its wechsel or exchange between different moments, form or content, the plurality of qualities and the uni unity of appearance that are always implicit and opposites in themselves, self-sundering and self-identical at once, and those are Hegel's terms. In other words, the paradox for critical thought is that what seems the starting point of any critique of capital and of exchange is always already caught up in a methodology for which the thing is suspect. In proceeding, we need to note that the resistance of the thing, let me say of the racial thing, is not only to the subsumptive movement of capital, but to the work of critical thought itself. For now, I want to dwell on this prior moment of self-sundered thinghood in Hegel in order to bring forth its own twofold character as a thing without value or as that which is not yet subsumed into representation as a value. Hegel's example of thinghood as a simple togetherness of a plurality is that commonplace element, that household thing, salt. This salt, he says, is a simple here and at the same time manifold. It is white and also tart, also cubicle in shape, of a specific gravity, etc. The manifold predicates of salt correspond to the senses of the perceiving subject, taste, touch, and sight in this case, indicating how thinghood, even taken in its simplicity, is already conceived of as a thing for another, perhaps, as we'll see, for another that is also not one. As a simple this here, it is taken as a bounded thing, a one. As an object of sensuous perception, it is simultaneously dissolved into its independent coexisting properties. And this is another passage that's on your sheet. Things, says Hegel, are therefore in and of themselves determinate. They have properties by which they distinguish themselves from others. Since the property is the thing's own property, 
or a determinateness in the thing itself, the thing has a number of properties. It is in truth, then, the thing itself that is white, and also cubical, also tart, and so on. In other words, the thing is the also, or the universal medium in which the many properties subsist apart from one another without touching or cancelling each other out, and when so taken, the thing is perceived as what is true. The thing is thus the pure medium of an also in which the community or Gemeinschaft of its contingent moments subsists. At the same time, the thing is apprehended in consciousness as one, as one thing composed of many distinct properties, and consciousness, says Hegel, alternatively makes itself as well as the thing into a pure many less one and into an also that resolves itself into independent matters. Resolution is thus a dissolution. It's an alternation, a vexillon, between the apprehension of the thing as a unity and its dissolution into distinct materials that will find its completion only within the self-consciousness of the subject. In the well-known dialectic of the lord and the bondsman, or the master and the slave, to which Fanon refers in Black Skin, White Masks, the thing is the often overlooked third term between the former, the master, whose enjoyment of the thing is its sheer negation or annihilation, and the latter, the slave or the bondsman, who works upon it. The bondsman's work forms and shapes the thing. In that formative work, the transformation of thing into object for the bondsman, then the latter comes to see in the independent being of the object its own independence. Thus the thing's formation is also subject forming. The beginning of the idea and the realization of the autonomous subject, a formation that takes place only in and through the appropriative destruction or negation of the thing formed, which, says Hegel, becomes an object for him only through his setting at naught the existing shape that confronts him. The autonomy of the bondsman here begins in the destructive appropriation of the thing, its transformation into a representation for him. In a somewhat obscure parable, Hegel had earlier emphasized exactly this destructive character of perception as appropriation. He refers us to what he calls the most elementary school of wisdom, that is, the ancient Eleusinian mysteries of Ceres and Bacchus, to learn the secret meaning of the eating of bread and the drinking of wine. Now, of course, the Eleusinian mysteries remain obscure to us exactly what they were, but they're clearly the origins of the Christian Eucharist and the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body of Christ. But obscure as the nature of those mysteries remain, it's hard to know if we should read the initiate's concern in these mysteries over the being of things as an impulse to that Eucharistic transubstantiation of them in their elevation into the consciousness, which would be the trajectory of the bondsman, or merely to their devouring destruction and ingestion, which would be what the Lord would do with them. Hegel's elaboration of the analogy certainly seems to suggest the latter destructive trajectory. He goes on, even animals are not shut out from this wisdom, but on the contrary show themselves to be most profoundly initiated into it. For they do not stand idly by in front of sensuous things as if these possessed intrinsic being, but despairing of their reality and completely assured of their nothingness, they fall to without ceremony and devour them. 
Perception is not only possession, it's the destructive appropriation of the thing that is one's object. This violent, cannibalistic parable of appropriation is precisely what Hegel, in the philosophy of history, will come to project onto that mere human thing, the African sensual Negro, for whom human flesh is but an object of sense, mere flesh. To the contrary, as Hortense Spillers has so forcefully shown, it was the institution of slavery that would reduce the enslaved human thing to mere flesh, rather than inaugurating the passage of the Negro into history and self-consciousness, as Hegel pretended enslavement would do. This mere flesh, violently reduced in the very historical grounding of racial capital to mere thingliness, subjected to mutilation and relentlessly coerced labor, is the source of value, of a value extracted and abstracted and still in circulation in these latter days, hopefully latter days, of racial capital. What social relations, what forms of social life emerge then when this broken thing, as Moton puts it, comes to speak or to shriek? Against this violence of appropriation of the thing by its representation as an object for, or strictly by its assimilation to the subject, I want for a moment to dwell on the space internal to the thing, in which, as Hegel put it, the many properties subsist apart from one another without touching or cancelling one another, one another, that is, the space that he calls the space of the also. Here it appears as a sheer contingency. There's no reason for salt to be white rather than pink, black or blue, all of which it may be, tart rather than sweet. Its determining qualities could be these or any other set of different differences without altering the fact of its apprehension as a thing, as an instance of thingliness. By the same token, this is a space governed by metonymy. This and also that and also the other all arrayed in relations of contiguity rather than subordination or identity, and that subsist in suspension with the one of the whole thing as it appears to the perceiving subject. The manifold of qualities that is the, <coughs> sorry, that is the thing, we may note, is matched by the manifold senses of the subject that perceives, touch, taste, sight, smell, etc. In, in the phenomenology, it's the destiny of the thing to become an object for the self-conscious representing subject, in which alone, and not in mere sense certainty, it finds its truth. As he puts it, the necessary advance from the previous shapes of consciousness for which their truth was the thing, and other than themselves, expresses just this, that not only is consciousness of a thing possible only for a self-consciousness, but that self-consciousness alone is the truth of those shapes. This advance or progress from the thing as a plurality of reciprocally self-differentiating elements to the unity of the object for the self-conscious subject inaugurates the progress of that perceiving subject towards its eventual unity with the spirit. It is also the undoing, the zugrundegehen of the thing. And I just remind you that, of course, this is the trajectory that Fanon envies and seeks. The release from being in the state of the thing into the state of being the self-conscious, self-perceiving subject in itself and for itself. But we should recall 
But for Hegel, the realization of the subject's identity with the spirit or the universal is found precisely in the state form. There, the mere contingencies of individual life find its unity and its freedom in its representation in and by the state. As the philosophy of history summarizes, and it's this passage on also on your, your sheet, but the subjective will has also a substantial life, a reality in which it moves in the region of essential being and has the essential itself as the object of its existence. This essential being is the union of the subjective with the rational will. It is the moral whole, the state, which is that form of reality in which the individual has and enjoys his freedom, but on the condition of his recognizing, believing in, and willing that which is common to the whole. Furthermore, Hegel goes on, all the worth which the human being possesses, all spiritual reality, he possesses only through the state. And accordingly, and this is Hegel again, in the history of the world, only those peoples can come under our notice which form a state. The thing that is processed into an object, the individual whose will is one with the state, and the people that form that state are the proper objects of thought and have worth or value. And yet, the things of no value persist in the shadow of that thought. Their twofold character persists beyond the thing's one-sided subsumption as an object of value to and for the state. In the interest of time, let me cut here a little hastily to the proposition that I'm most aware still needs to be developed further. That is, that the thing, as it's conceived and dismissed in the Hegelian dialectic, offers equally the means to think back into the definitively multifarious social forms that a process of philosophical subsumption, whose universal claims are the repetition in thought of the material drive to uniformity of production that characterized the colonial capitalism coeval with it, that it sought to liquidate. The thing thought against the grain of Hegel's magisterial dialectic as resistance to it both shares in and models another social life, the social life of things. For the thing does not have the sealed and bounded unity of the individual sovereign subject or of the object it appropriates. The thing differentiated within itself is also porous to differences. The constitution of the thing as an assemblage of non-essential qualities frames it as an instance of community Gemeinschaft, the being together of differences that have no organizing principle or law that claims universal validity. Dispossessed, the thing's property is to defy appropriation. It is the name and the elemental form of those forms of life that capitalism and the state come to racialize and then to destroy, to destroy in racializing. As Fanon once put it in the essay, Racism and Culture, the object of racism is no longer the individual man, but a certain form of existing. And actually Rosa Luxemburg had remarked something very similar in her uh, big book on accumulation in the last chapter on culture, where she talks about how in its endless need to expand in order to accumulate, capitalism must begin by destroying the social forms of the natives um, that stand in the way of capitalist development and that attack on forms of life
that are alien to the state and capital is a constant uh, in her thinking and of course ultimately in Fanon in a rather ambivalent way. But I'd like to end with a rather different parable about salt than the one that Hegel tells. One that enacts not only the diversity of the thing in its constitution, but the social being and meaning of the thing as it survives in African-American thought. African-American novelist Tony Cade Bambara reproduces a belief strongly held among the enslaved in a passage of her short story, Broken Field Running, that performs a black radical critique and an alternative ethics of collectivity in the form of an improvisatory call and response among black elders as narrated by the community activist in the story, Lacey. And the, uh, the belief that she's referring to in this passage that follows and is on your sheet is that it was the eating of salt that prevented the enslaved from flying back to Africa. And those of you who've read um, the famous short seventh chapter of black Marxism, Cedric Robinson will know that he alludes to that. And he doesn't just say they believed um, that they could fly back to Africa. He says they believed, really believed, that they could fly back. And it's that, that belief um, and that, it's not only a belief, but it's a kind of heuristic entry into thinking about the relation of the enslaved to the institution of slavery that uh, Bambara is invoking in this short story. And I'll not try to, to capture the astonishing uh, speecherisms as she captures them, but just read it straight in my bastardized Irish accent. I say when we came to Africa, we could fly. You heard me, we could fly, says Granddaddy Sanderson. But we ate too much salt. Can't mess with too much salt because it throws things out of balance. Fess Newton, here in his queue, launches into some fast-talking explanation of gravity, replete with positive and negative poles. Salt as conductor, too much an inhibitor. Then old Ma Hudson frowning up, her lips lost in the folds of cheek. If you can't dance it, Fess Newton, and if you can't sing it, Wade Sanderson, leastways, tell it right. Tell it in terms of fire, water, air, earth, and bone. It's the spirits that I was saying that we could fly, but we got messed around with all that salt. Salt treks, salt trails, all those mother's tears, all those bones bleaching in the briny deep, all that sweat. Digging the earth, we became the salt of the earth. Same, uh, sorry, couldn't pay us a salt, so they paid us a salary. Same thing, too much salt. Salt of the earth, somebody mumbles as I bring in the tray of spiced tea. The salt trails of the people, Sanderson resumes, crisscrossing tracks down the road of history. And sometimes they're scooped up like so much dust, so we leave no trace. Scooped up to leave a lie in its place. And when you scoop a people's salt tracks up, you can lay them down somewhere else and misdirect the traffic. Or you can plunk down the whole bunch of salt and it be a stumbling block for sure. Sure, they scoop them up. Distill the stuff to crystals and sell ourselves back to us for seasoning so we can sweat some more. Then follows a concluding improvised sorrow song after a bit more dialogue. I know why the Ethiopic is so salty, Lord, Miss Sorrentine starts calling. Mmm, we know why the ocean be so salty, the response. They continue singing the song. They sleep in the deep, sated with salt. How many you suspect? How many? The call. Many thousands gone, the reply. 
many thousands gone. And I confess that passage gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Here, salt is thought and collectively thought, not as the bounded object of a unified subject, but as a thing whose social life interpenetrates and is interpenetrated by the social life of other human things. <coughs> Innerly differentiated by their multiple qualities as coerced labor, African captives, spiritual believers, reflective elders, the untold dead beneath the seas, or angelic beings. Salt of the earth and salt-sweating workers extorted and enslaved, and intellectuals, scientists, and artists, the ensemble of the thinking of this thing, salt, in its relation to other things, human and other than human, constitutes not an idea subsumed into the universal, but one which congregates the multiple tracks of, human, of historical being in a constellation of pasts and possibilities. This notion of the constellation evokes Walter Benjamin's early formation in the origins of German tragedy of the idea as an arrangement of concrete elements in a configuration or a constellation. There, as he puts it, by virtue of the elements being seen as points in such constellations, phenomena are subdivided and at the same time redeemed. To think the constellation is to take seriously and to dwell with the notion of the thing as community, Gemeinschaft of properties, Eigenschaften, that Hegel briefly invokes only at once to dismiss. It's to grasp the particulars not as instances of a universal, but as specificities, things that connect in the configuration that is a social life unsubsumed to political representation or to economic representation, this and also that without subordination. In an essay called Subject and Object, Adorno remarked, peace is the state of distinctness without domination, with the distinct participating in each other. The remark is, we can see, an echo of Hegel read against his own grain. Justice appears as indeed the subsistence of many diverse and independent properties. Could we then think this possibility of justice and peace in the tradition of black radical thought as the rays, the thing of a republic, grasped as the utopian moment, the rays nullius, unfolded in the space of the also, of the also this, and also that, which is social life imagined in its many-sided, multifarious togetherness of singularities. In a well-known passage of Black Skin, White Masks, under the gaze and the cry of a white child, Franz Fanon finds himself, to his horror, an object among other objects. What, one may now ask, if instead he had found himself a human thing among other things? What if not only the thing, but das Ich, the subject, turns out to be a creature of many diverse and independent properties, that we perhaps subsist in what an old Irish phrase calls a mutual through otherness, with things, among things, as things. What Kant called the pathological subject of necessity, Denise da Silva's affectable subjects, is the ground for a thinking of life in common not beyond or post-race, but through difference as constitutive of what it is to be the unsubsumable human thing among the things that are its surround.
holding and held. Thank you. Hi everyone, uh, it's good to be back. Um, thanks, uh, thank you for Nirvana and UCHRI for inviting me, certainly. Um, it's good to be back also to, uh, I guess, really continue conversations um, that had been ongoing before, um, both with some of you and also uh, with David over the years um, here in Los Angeles, um, various MLA conferences uh, under extreme anxiety from my part, et cetera. Um, so, uh, and I have a few pictures here that I'll share in a second. So, uh, the response I wrote is uh, more related to uh, underrepresentation. Uh, David's book, um, uh, instead of the talk we just heard, um, although there are many points of similarity, um, and also related to um, part of the you know the part of my work that is influenced um, uh, by by David's work, by David's thinking. Um, so, uh, mostly what I'm interested in thinking through here um, today as it were, um, would, would be the concept of development and the temporality of the subject. Um, specifically the way uh, 18th and 19th century philosophy conceives of the subject, its cultivation through culture, and its end in the form of the states. So in some way, David's thinking are, uh, with, uh, with Kant uh, more so than with Hegel, although obviously the two are related. Um, and I want to put this in relationship with, also following from the book, uh, the figure of the subaltern, in particular, um, the appearance of, of violence, um, which uh, also follow Lloyd's much longer engagement with subaltern studies. So a jumping off point is a distinction that Lloyd makes early in underrepresentation. He argues that two racial figures, the savage and the black, are, quote, on the threshold of an unrealized humanity, still subject to affect and to force of nature, not yet capable of representation, not yet apt for freedom uh, and civility. That is, they form one end of a spectrum of development, the other end being the disinterested subject of modernity. As such, they exist in the temporality of the not yet, perhaps indefinitely so. Aside from this, however, Lloyd also invokes the figure of the subaltern at the, quote, destruction of the representation rather than its threshold, um, a figure that seems to appear only in moments of violence. So I think it's worth thinking about or asking about these figures um, and these concepts in relation to one another um, and to a posited ethical and aesthetic subjecthood. So mostly focusing on uh, this first issue, that is the development and cultivation of the subjects, um, which is a line in uh, continuity in Lloyd's work in general. So for example, and particularly influential for me, was uh, his work Culture in the State, written with Paul Thomas, Paul Thomas uh, in which the authors argue that culture mediates the contradiction between particular interests and universal institutions. Quote, by displacing it onto a temporal schema in which the subject is defined in terms of the development of its full human capacity. Key to this interpolation of the individual into citizenship was the aesthetic, which they argue is in, quote, ethical training devoted to adducing the citizen from the human being. Aesthetic culture represents, therefore, the very form of bourgeois ideology. Um, that is, as we just heard, particular experiences subsumed into collective culture um, that is above petty political fragmentation and has accordingly a boundless temporal horizon. 
This in turn allows politics to take place as if, as if material ma conditions were a matter of indifference and instead establishes a hegemony that is disseminated, a disseminated form of self-evidence or common sense that regulates subjects across differentiated domains of modern society. So continuing this line of thought through underrepresentation, Lloyd considers how race subtends this process of development by providing a template, an example of that which is only particular, raw, and governed by affect or affectable. Um, of course, this in part follows from Guthrie Spivak's well-known argument that Kant's epistemology relies upon while also foreclosing the figure of the native informant and the raw man. Uh, Lloyd argues, however, that this figure is not foreclosed per se, but rather at a liminal point, at one end of an aesthetic development. As he writes, the quote, differential example of the savage is a requirement for thinking the autonomy itself and therefore cannot be cultivated out of the system, or um, I guess we could add cultivated into the system either. Uh, one consequence of this is the aesthetic, uh, the result of a disinterested judgment in principle, must appear as if immediate. And in this way, the conceptual underpinning of that immediacy is recalled only by analogy. This has the effect of naturalizing this entire structure. Um, Denise de Silva's work allows us to move between the affectability of the body and affectable territories. Uh, in No Bodies, uh, uh, her article, she writes, she argues that the racial subaltern is, quote, negative, but the negative but interior ground on which the force of law stands. As such, the state, deriving its authority from an external reason and necessity of its self-preservation, is able to justify even, or perhaps, uh, gratuitous law-preserving violence. Sorry, sorry, even or perhaps especially gratuitous law-preserving violence. The legitimacy of this violence is closely tied to space or spaces of its operation. Um, that is, the bodies to be affected by law slash violence are imminent with an affectable territory. In this case, uh, in her case, uh, that uh, the example she brings up, the case of the favela, which is an exceptional, which not an exceptional, but rather a constituent space. She writes, in this affectable territory, the state performs indifference. For the favela's residents are nobodies, as their existence unfolds in front of, before, in front of ethical life. The ethical juridical territory, um, the architectures and procedures of law enforcement are designed to protect. Um, so I want to think about this question of affectable territories and geographies and spaces, uh, particularly urban spaces. Uh, so for example, this is a wall, um, you might have um, seen this or heard of this, constructed in the years running up to the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. Um, it was an acoustic barrier, later um, termed colloquially the you know, wall of shame. It was a wall uh, along a freeway entering into the city center uh, 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 near a favela in Mare. And it was aimed to sort of prevent uh, cars, visitors to the city, from being able to uh, see this p uh, particular favela. Uh, under the idea that the city was, uh, insofar it was for these tourists or these visitors, um, that it uh, that it would sort of prevent or, um, uh, or distance um, these other kinds of spaces from view. Um, and therefore, the wall kind of uh, pr provided or proposed a relationship between um, the affectable territories of the favela and the rest of the city or the, or the city as a whole. Um, It was, it was justified, by the way, as a, as a sound barrier, as an acoustic wall, actually, to um, 
for the sake of the, of the people living you know, on the other side of the wall, right? Um, so there's this way in which not only the, the visual aesthetic of, of the wall, but also the oral um, aesthetic were ways of governing and regulating relationships between um, different uh, quote unquote users of the city, as they would put it. Um, so uh, here development as urban development constellate processes that are both related and intention. It takes as its object those spaces that are cast as anachronisms that are out of time, disjunction with an ever receding horizon of a technological modernity. The aesthetics of this development are not incidental to, but constitutive of the state's law preserving violence, even if, as an aesthetic, development can appear as immediate and therefore as natural, self-evident, unrelated to political processes. Again, this has the effect of naturalizing not only questions of ownership, but who counts as subjects proper of, proper of Pro subjects proper of the city and who alternatively inhabits literal and fig figurative affectable territory. Uh, so one can see this um, kind of common sense, aesthetic common sense in the global north as well. Again, this is not just economic common sense that, that is concerning property law, control of labor, regu regulation of trade, but an aesthetic one. Um, so if we take another example, sorry, another example here. Uh, yeah. Um, so these are images from a fairly new development in South London. I could have used images from any number of uh, these kinds of urban developments. This is uh, one of the largest um, sort, of, uh, develop, uh, sort of development, what they call regeneration development uh, in all of Europe. Um, and it's near the Battersea Power Station. It's gonna be a series of corporate offices, Apple, et cetera, um, a mall and luxury apartment buildings. Um, you know, each of these, each of the various buildings are designed by star architects, and even within each building, various spaces are designed by, um, you know, brand name um, designers. Um, so while the final development may appear often as a public space, for example, a riverside space, um, those who catch the notice of private security forces in the space will come to understand that it is not something that's happening in um, in the sort of um, surveyed city more generally. Um, further, the aesthetics of the city cultivate particular kinds of subjects. Not only do these images with their green rooftops pr produce an easily consumable ecological imaginary for potential buyers, but the development developers advertise as amenities an individual sustainable lifestyle through design and consumption. Everything from supposedly cycle-friendly streets, organic grocery options, and pop-up yoga events. Um, and here in some of these, I guess one of the things that um, always strikes me about these kinds of images are, one, the appeal to a certain kind of visual immediacy, um, the greenness of the spaces, of the kind of the garden rooftops, um, the frequent um, uh, references to community, which is the term you also mentioned as well. Um, things that are, um, in this sense, are, are, are mediated, heavily mediated as ideology, but appear as immediate. I guess I would sort of question the, um, at what critical juncture we can confidently say that we, um, we can decide what has been mediated. I'll get back to that maybe a little bit later. Um, so on the other side, so to speak, and let me know if I'm going over time, um, of these developments are spaces of the city that are thought to be out of date. So I'm not thinking of London's well-appointed official past, but rather contemporary spaces that exist in the temporality of the not yet, as in not yet demolished, not yet regenerate, regenerated, not yet revitalized. These spaces, for example, estates for social housing or working class neighborhoods vary in form, 
but come to be associated with particular aesthetic markers in the public imagination. Uh, these are the aesthetics of the imposing brutalist council estate, concrete tower blocks, places, according to Margaret Thatcher, that produced a block mentality among its residents. Lloyd argues that Kant comes to associate the beautiful with the moral. Accordingly, these spaces, when posited as containing an es essential aesthetic values, become self-evident examples of proper or improper relationships to the state. Um, just for a few examples. Sorry. Um, this is from a, a project by a group called Fugitive Images, Images called I'm Still Here. It was a housing estate in Hoxton. Um, the people, they, the housing associated started moving the people, as people moved out, putting these um, orange boards over their windows, sort of slowly neglecting the property until everyone would move out and then it would become a private development, which it ended up becoming. Um, however, some of the residents, um, uh, the, the residents together actually, um, put their images in these sort of passport style photos um, on the side of the building, and the project was called I'm Still Here to sort of draw attention to the fact that they were still residents living in these um, supposedly out of date or disjunctive um, uh, constructions, spaces. Um, um, of course, uh, this is, and there are any number of these, this is famously Robin Hood Gardens, a brutalist um, council estate being torn down, uh, replaced with luxury housing. That little section that's being torn down, this is kind of a separate topic, but it's, it's interestingly, it's being um, acquired by the V&A Museum as sort of a part of you know, London's history. So they actually, you know, after residents who were living there, social council residents but living there uh, moved out, they actually acquired this as part of their, their history. Um, or infamously, um, we have you know, Grenfell Tower here, um, completed in 1974 in a brutalist style. Uh, renovations, as many of you know, in 2016 added an aluminum cladding to the outside of the building, um, partially, uh, mostly as, a, as an um, aesthetic measure, that is to change the aesthetics of the exterior of the building for um, residents in other parts of the city. So the, the cladding served as a kind of aesthetic wall, determining the relationship between the tower and its residents and the city as a whole. Um, so the relationship between what is or what was behind these walls and the city as a whole, materially and politically, could perhaps be one of development. That is, these spaces are of, in the broad, broad sense that Lloyd talks about, spaces are of the not yet, wherein the fulfillment of development leads either to demolition, gentrification, and displacement, or not fulfilled, they remain as the other to progress. However delimited a relationship this might be, it still suggests a relationship, one that might become available to non-subsumptive forms of politics and representation, perhaps. I guess the question I would want to ask, going back to what I was starting with um, uh, and through discussion of this work, is you know, what are the differences between that sort of relationship on the threshold and one of subalternity, and one that destroys the threshold? Um, these might not be the only options, but it seems asking when the coercive logic of development and representation slips past to the unimaginable unrepresentable, which produces only figures of absence or excess. To me, it seems like maybe that these two positions, two concepts are quite mutually exclusive and that um, by choosing one or the other, so to speak, um, that would have different consequences and significant consequences, both materially and uh, theoretically. Um, so I'll end there for time. We'll have more of a Q&A. Thank you. <laughs>